0: The text is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you that it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my father. No one knows who the father is except, excuse me, who the son is except the father, and no one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, "Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it." This is the gospel of the Lord. So, obviously, this is a long text, um, but it is a masterclass on the mission of the church and how we participate in the mission of the church. So, we're going to try to get as much of it as we can, which is why I encourage you to take notes if you haven't grabbed a note sheet. No shame in going back and grabbing a note sheet from the music stand um, as we get into this. We're going to get five points today. You can see them on the note sheet. They are the who, the what, the where, the when, and the why and how, which are intimately tied, of the mission of the church. So, let's dive in. First, we start with the who. The who. Uh, the text starts this way, after, the Lord, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. Uh, Luke starts the text by saying after this, Which is Luke's way of telling us, you should remember what I just told you. (laughs) What happened right before this? Well, it was the text that we studied last Sunday, where we had three would-be disciples of Jesus who came to Jesus and in different ways said that they would follow him, but ultimately didn't. And particularly, we should have in mind the last of those men. If you remember, he was the one who said to Jesus, I will follow you, but first let me go kiss my father and mother goodbye. And what we said last week is that when Jesus says no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God, he was communicating that the call into discipleship is of a greater degree than the call into public ministry. That the call of discipleship is the intimidating, is the expensive call. It is the, the thing that causes sacrifice and investment. And being a pastor or teacher or some other called worker is sort of the little cherry on top of that. Every one of us needs to be a disciple first before we would even consider being a called worker. That's important because of who Jesus is going to send out in this text. It says that he sent out 72 others. Others From whom? Well, the 12 disciples, right? Maybe you were listening to this text and you said, this sounds kind of familiar. That's because it is kind of familiar. It is nearly identical to a text in Luke chapter nine where Jesus had sent out his disciples to do very much the same thing. And if we would have only had Luke chapter nine and not had Luke chapter 10, we might've had this idea that, that the people who were supposed to advance the mission of the church were the called workers right? The disciples, the apostles, the pastors, the teachers. Those would be the ones who would advance the mission of the church, who would go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. But what Jesus does in Luke chapter 10 is says, nope, it's not just the apostles, it's also the others, which includes you. This is maybe a challenge for us because I think the default setting for a lot of Christians in North America is that the pastor does the mission of the church, Uh, I see this because I'm uh, our circuit pastor, which means I I help uh, churches in our kind of geographical area, so Ontario, Quebec, and upstate New York, and uh, two of the churches in our circuit, one in Rochester, New York, and one in Ottawa, are calling for pastors right now. And I also just recently had a call to a church in Oregon, and what was uh, common between all three of those is that the, the calling congregation said, we want a pastor who is talented in outreach, Now, that really could mean, and I think it does mean at some level, that they want a pastor who's going to come in and teach them how to do outreach. But I've been around this game long enough to know that in some cases, that means we want a pastor who's going to do the outreach for us, right? We don't want to do the outreach. We want a guy who's going to get all that outreach stuff done, bring more people in. Jesus says, no, the mission of the church belongs to all of us. Now, specifically, he sends out 72 others, which is such a specific number that it should make your mind zoom in on it for a second. Why 72? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 10, Noah has just come off the ark, and we get a record of all of the nations of the earth that come from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And you want to know how many nations were on the earth at that time? 72. So when Jesus sends out 72 of his other followers, he's making a statement that the mission of the church belongs to all Christians for the sake of all people. This isn't just for the nation of Israel. This is for all people. And so very basically, that is the who of the mission of the church. It is all of us for all of them. Every single one of us for every single one of them. Uh, To press this, though, I want to show you what Jesus says in the next verse. He tells them that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so they should ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, we're not so removed from agrarian society that we don't have a sense that there is sort of a harvest season. If you're a farmer, you only have a certain amount of time where you have to harvest the crops. Otherwise, they start to rot on the vine or the plant or whatever it is. So you have to get as many workers as possible on the job for a short period of time in order to get the harvest in. And Jesus is saying the same thing. We have this short period of time called the existence of the universe where people need to be hearing the message of the gospel to be brought in to the faith. But he says the workers are few. There are only so many who are speaking this message. So ask the Lord of the harvest, pray to God that he would bring more people who would speak the word of God to others. And that all sounds pretty good, right? That's exactly what we pray every single Sunday when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. We're praying that the God would send out people to his harvest field. But did you see the very next words that Jesus says? He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And then he says, go, I'm sending you. Which means this isn't ask for God to send other people. This is ask God to send me." Like Jesus says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers and then he says, go, I'm sending you out. And this fits with this thing that we say around here across of Life, that prayer is not getting God to move in my direction so much as it is getting me to move in God's direction, aligning my heart with God's will. What is God's will? That All of us would reach all of them, right? And so what I pray, when I pray, thy kingdom come, as I'm praying, God, align my heart with your will that I would be one of those workers in your harvest field. That's a little bit scary, right? I might see a a dip in the volume when we get to the Lord's prayer later today and we pray, thy kingdom come. Some of you are gonna think, do I really wanna pray that if that's what Jesus is going to do? But it's what he calls us to do. And if this is a little bit intimidating, then um, maybe let me simplify this for you. Like, I think sometimes we have this idea that what it means to be part of the mission of the church is I have to go out and be bold in my proclamation of Jesus. And, and sure, absolutely, that would be great. But let's start here. What if you went home today and you prayed to Jesus, Jesus, I'm a moron. Can you please make this as easy as possible for me to share Jesus with other people? Like, I don't have very many skills. I don't have really good conversational skills. Like, I I can't do it. Can you just, like, put it in my lap, please? I bet he would answer that prayer. In fact, I'll tell you what, I've prayed that prayer, because I am a moron, and it's worked, right? Like, God has given people to me to share the gospel with who my brilliance was not the thing that brought them. It was Jesus. What if we started there? Dear Jesus, I'm a moron, make this easy for me. (laughs) And Jesus would send us out. He would. This is ultimately not our work, which actually is is what he says later in this text, right? He says that um, the the place where he wants them to go is all places he's about to go. Do you understand that? Jesus is sending them as sort of like preppers for his ministry. Like the same thing happens with us. Jesus doesn't expect us to go and convert people. He expects us just to simply announce the kingdom has come and let him do the ultimate work. Or as he says later in the text, the ones who listen to you, listen to me. The ones who reject you, reject me. This isn't ultimately you. It's Jesus working through you. So that's the who. Let's talk about the what. What is the message that we proclaim, all of us, to all of them? Well, Jesus says it twice in the text. He says that we are to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you. And he says it later in verse 11 as well. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. Uh, In the New Testament, the concept of the kingdom is a rich topic. In fact, it is the thing that Jesus talks about more than anything else in his time on earth. And because of that, there's a lot that you could say about the kingdom, but I think we can summarize it in this very short phrase. It is the reign and rule of Christ. The reign and the rule of Christ. A way to understand this is to maybe think about like a castle. So a castle has walls around it, right, that protect the castle and the people in the castle. And so if you are inside the walls, you are safe because the marauders can't get over the wall and maybe there's some, some spies or something up on the wall who are watching out for anybody who's going to attack. If you're in the walls, you are safe. You are under the reign of the king or the lord or the master, or whoever owns the castle. But if you're inside the walls, you're also under the rule of the king or the Lord or whoever is over the castle, right? You have to abide by the rules that he sets out for how life is supposed to happen within the walls of that kingdom. And the same thing is true for us in Christ. We are under both the reign and the rule of Christ. We are under the reign of Christ and that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ has given the price for all of our sins to us freely as a gift. And you can receive it and be covered by it. And no sin that you can commit or have committed would ever separate you from the love of Christ. But that also means that you're under the rule of Christ. That Christ now gets to call the shots. If you're going to live in his kingdom, inside his walls, be protected by him and his angels, then you follow him. You listen to what he says. You might not necessarily like it, but it's the kingdom. And you're in it. And I think this helps us as we think about what it means to proclaim the gospel. Because I think there's a direct line that you can draw between the concept of kingdom and the concept of gospel. Gospel was not originally a Bible word. Uh, It was actually just a Roman word that was used to describe a message of fact. So we even have a, a document called the Gospel of Caesar Augustus, which was a document that said that Caesar Augustus is now the Caesar, you might not like it, you might not want Caesar Augustus to be the Caesar, it doesn't matter. It's just the gospel. This is what it is. And that's what we proclaim. We proclaim the gospel of the kingdom that there is a ruler who rules. And the reason I think that's important is because I think we have this deep sense that we're supposed to like convince people that Jesus is king. When all we're called to do is just announce that he's king. We We can just say something like, I talked to the children, Christ is risen. (laughs) That's the facts. Like, What are you going to do about it? Your sins are forgiven. You can live forever. There's no convincing that needs to happen. It's simply the announcement of the gospel. And I would actually say that uh, over the last couple decades, the the Christian church, particularly in North America, has kind of bought this idea that we need to convince people into the faith. That if we give them all the right uh, trappings around the message, if we, we make them feel really comfortable, if we even do something like maybe a little bait and switch, that that'll get them into the faith. That's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us simply to announce, this is the facts. The kingdom has come. Christ is risen. I mean, you cannot not live in line with that. That's fine. Caesar Augustus is still Caesar and you can rebel against that if you want. It's just not going to work out for you which is what he says in the next part of the text, right? He says that some people are going to reject this. And when you enter a town and are not welcomed, then you go into its streets and you say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet because the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. And we talked uh, a couple weeks ago about what wiping the dust off your feet means. You can go back and check that if you want. But then he continues and he says, I tell you that for those people who reject this gospel, who say, I don't care, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then he continues Woe to you, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon to judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Now, That might be a little bit confusing for you, especially if you're not really up on your ancient Middle Eastern geography. Um, But what Jesus is doing is he compares three towns, three of which are Gentile towns, which have particularly spotty histories, Sodom, Tyre, and Sidon, with three Israelite towns, which should have been the places where the gospel would have been most accepted, Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Maybe you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Where God completely destroyed a city because of their sin, You maybe are less familiar with Tyre and Sidon, but these were places that were exemplary of false teaching and people who would even infiltrate into Israel to try to get them to stop worshiping the true God. These were places that people kind of spat on the ground when they heard the names of these towns. And what Jesus says is, for those who hear this gospel and reject it, it's going to be worse for them than for those towns. Whoa, (laughs) Right? That's a challenging thing to hear and a challenging thing for us to think we have to proclaim. That like it's not just Christ is risen beyond your merry way, but Christ is risen and if you don't care, this is not good for you. Like, Like this means hell for you. And we have to proclaim both. What Jesus says is the final judgment will be worse for those who have access to the gospel and reject it. Now, I think we need to meditate on this just a little bit longer um, because sometimes people ask this question of me, what about all those people who never had access to the gospel, right? They live in some, you know, tribe way out in the Amazon and they've never had anyone come and tell them about Jesus. Are they going to be saved? Um, And there are a lot of really good answers to that question. um, But you want to know Jesus' answer? (laughs) He would turn it on you and say, yeah? What about all those people sitting in pews every Sunday in North American cities Hearing God's word freely without any fear for their life. What about all those people who have God's word at the click of a couple thumbprints, but never open it? What about all those people who can listen to podcasts, who can watch YouTube videos without their government cracking down and saying, you can't watch that or listen to that, but they'd rather fill their minds with Netflix? What about all those people? And there's a reason that it's kind of hushed in the room right now, because that's us, right? We have so much access to God's word. And I'm not saying anybody in this room is necessarily rejecting it, but I am letting you know what Jesus' warning is. Don't miss this. Don't throw this away. Don't say, this is nice to have, but it can't animate my life. It can't be the thing that defines every day of my life. Don't do that. Because Jesus is serious, This is the message of the kingdom and his kingdom is victorious over all his foes. And if you're not in, then you're on the losing side. So be all in with Jesus and proclaim this message. So that's the who and the what. Now the where. Um, This is a simple, but I think profound point. As you look at the text, where does Jesus say to do this? He says, first, stay at people's houses, eating and drinking whatever they give you, and do not move from house to house. And when you enter a town, you are welcome to eat what is offered to you. Uh, Jesus says that basically what you're supposed to do is just go live normal life, right? He doesn't say, go and set up churches, go preach on the street corners, go make sure to gather a crowd, get a really good social media presence. He says, just go to people's houses and eat what they they give you converse with them over the table, talk about the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that outreach really happens in the mundane and normal spaces of life. It doesn't happen by amazing shows or big campaigns. It happens when people have conversations. Pastor Mark Henrich, many of you know him, pastor at Hope in Scarborough, good friend of mine, uh, he he turned me on to this article a couple years ago about two mission teams that went into a mission field with two very different strategies. On the one hand, you had the team that did sort of the typical mission field uh, outreach strategy where they would bring their Bibles and their gospel tracts and they would try to talk to people about Jesus and set up churches and invite people to worship. And then there was this second team and their strategy was just go into the community, try to make friends eat dinner with people. And I'm guessing if you've been paying attention to the point that I'm trying to make or you can guess which of those teams was more successful, who had more baptisms, who saw churches grow faster. It was the second of those two teams because people were more receptive to the message of the gospel when they saw that people actually genuinely cared about them, when they were willing to eat with them, when they were willing to have that, that social lubricant, if you will, of just food and drink, This same guy who wrote the article, he put together this acronym that he said is his mission strategy moving forward because of this. He said that with every person, he just begins by praying for them, and he listens before speaking, he eats with them, serves their needs if he can, and finally shares the Savior with them. He says it all happens in his house, over his dinner table, and he still sees God's word working. I wonder if we could do the same thing. Like, we are in a crisis of loneliness in this country. You all know it. People out there need someone to say, I care about you. I care about you enough to have you over. Let me make you a meal. Why don't we talk about whatever you want to talk about? It turns out Jesus relates to just about everything in life. And and so you'll have a chance to talk about Jesus. And that might be the best context to do it. Now, I know there are a couple excuses that people have to this model of ministry, um, so let me dispel them really quickly for you. Some people would say, well, I'm not really the hosting type. Okay, you can go to a restaurant. A Mississauga's food scene is fantastic. Just take them out and it'll be just almost as good. Some people would say, well, my space is too small. I get it. We live in a big city. Um... I would just say that's probably not a good excuse because I was just listening to a networking consultant on a podcast who said, as he tries to help people network, like people who are like white collar jobs, this sort of thing, um, he says at like cocktail parties and things like this, the smaller the space, the better. Because bigger spaces make it seem less intimate. Like you you don't really have to talk to people, but the smaller spaces actually force you into conversations with people and usually important ones. Your space is small, awesome. (laughs) That's what you should want. Some of you might say, well, I don't really have the money, and I get it. Inflation is a real thing. I bet you can buy them coffee. At Tim Hortons, you can buy a coffee for two bucks. Ten dollars if you get them maybe a breakfast sandwich or a donut. (laughs) And if you really can't afford that, let me know. If you are intentionally reaching out to somebody and you need money to pay for them to have a meal with you, we will pay for it. And if Cross of Life's leadership team doesn't approve that, I will pay for it because I care so much about this and I think this is really what we ought to be doing. Just the normal things of life. We care about people. That's where we do this. So that's the where. How about the when? Uh, again, simple but profound. The answer is now. When, right now. What does Jesus say? He says, go, which I looked it up in the original Greek, it means go. <laughs> right now, right? And he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. What do lambs do when wolves are around? they have a sense of urgency, right? And he says, don't take anything. Like this is an urgent mission. Don't even talk to people. Like somebody comes past you on the road, just keep going right now. I think some of us might be tempted to think, well, I can't right now because I, I don't know a lot about the Bible. I don't know an answer to a lot of the questions. I, I'm not really good at, at putting together cogent sentences about Jesus. I get it. You remember what Jesus did last week, though? He set up this text by showing us the, um, discipleship blunder after discipleship blunder after discipleship blunder. He's not putting you into this mission right now because you're particularly excellent. He's doing it because it's about him and he's using you. But by the way, if you do want more answers on any questions that you feel somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus might ask, come and ask me. I've heard just about all of them and I have pretty good answers, I think. If you need help knowing what to say, that's my job. I'm here for you. But right now is the time. And I think as I look out at the room, maybe many of you, maybe even all of you, have somebody in your life that you know. They need to hear about Jesus. Now's the time. Go. Then finally, the how and the why, which are intimately tied together. Um, One of the challenges that people have when they hear this message of the mission of the church and that we are called to go and spread the good news that the kingdom has come near is we have this sense that we are not supposed to impose our beliefs on other people, right? I've heard this from non-Christians, right? It's fine that you're a Christian, just don't impose your beliefs on me. I've heard this from Christians who have said, I really want to share my faith with this person, but I don't want to impose my beliefs on them. The first thing we need to do is just uh, like examine the logic of this statement because it's completely illogical. Um, The moment that you say no one should impose their beliefs on someone else, you are imposing a belief on someone else. Your belief is that no one should impose beliefs on someone else. Do you follow that? The moment you say no one should impose their beliefs on someone else, you are imposing your belief that no one should impose beliefs on somebody else. It's kind of like saying uh, everything I say is a lie. Right? If that statement is true, then it's not true. And if that statement is false, then it's meaningless. And so it's not even worth saying. It's meaningless string of words. And so is the idea that we shouldn't impose our beliefs on other people. Everyone is imposing their beliefs on everyone all the time. We can't help ourselves. No one can not do this. The moment I say, nice weather we're having, I'm imposing my beliefs on you. So it's an illogical statement, right? And we should own that because we should understand that the person who's saying this, they don't don't actually think that. They're trying to escape the conversation. And for some people, it's just because they've rejected Jesus and that's fine. It's between them and Jesus. But I do think we need to be a little bit empathetic about this because uh, for some folks, I think what they're trying to say when they say you shouldn't impose your beliefs on other people is that they've seen that sometimes we impose our beliefs on other people for us and not for them. And they sense that. They sense that when we tell them the message, we're doing it for us and not for them. So a couple ways that you might see this is like particularly the salesman who's getting commission, right, would be the easiest example of this. They come and they say, I just want to sell you this brand new, I don't know, washer and dryer set, whatever, it doesn't matter. But you know behind it, like, like if you buy a little bit better model, a few more thousand dollars, well, 3% on a few more thousand dollars of commission is in their pocket. And, and so they're doing it for themselves, not really for you, which is why we're all kind of skeptical of salesmen, right? But this can happen with organizations, Like churches, right? Like a a church who sees that its budget is maybe a little bit tight or sees that the demographics of their congregation are aging, might say, we need more people and particularly young families so that our organization can keep going or we can make budget. I I worry about that with Cross of Life. Thankfully for us, demographically, we look like we're gonna be here for a while. God be praised for all these children. But uh, we don't fund our own budget. Right? Like We still have a subsidy that comes from our church body and I think we can have this pressure that like, we're supposed to grow so that we can pay our bills. That can't be our attitude. The moment we do that, we, we start to feel like we're doing it for us, not for them. It could even be something as simple as like, that, that that's need to feel right. Some of us have that, I do, a lot of the time. I need to feel like I'm doing something right or, or maybe it's like this feeling of like, I believe something a little bit weird and I need to be validated in it. Um, like maybe if you, uh, you, you follow a particular diet that's not like a mainstream diet, like you only eat, I don't know, sardines or something like this. And you tell this person, you're like, I only eat sardines. And then the thing you want to do next is like make sure that they validate that that's an okay thing for you to do. <laughs> and so you say, you should do it too, right? It's so good for you. Well, you're not doing it because you actually care about them. You're doing it for yourself to validate yourself. We can't do this because this is what leads people to say, you shouldn't impose your beliefs on me. You know that Jesus knows that? He shows us right in the text, right? When the 72 come back, they say to Jesus, it was amazing. You you can't even imagine it. The demons were submitting to us in your name. Jesus says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Now, this is kind of uh, a little bit enigmatic, but let me see if I can break it down for you. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Some people think that that's him referring to a past event, like when Satan was a good creation of God and he fell. Probably not. The way the grammar is set up, it seems to be that, that Jesus is saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when you guys proclaimed the kingdom, like just a couple days ago. And I see him continuing to fall, his, his power is falling. What he's doing is he's affirming them. He's saying, yeah, the demons did submit to you and there is an uproar in the spiritual realm because you guys went out there and you opened your mouth about the kingdom. But then what does he do? He says, don't rejoice though that the spirits submit to you. Instead, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see what he's saying? You guys are all excited because things went well for you. You're all excited because you were successful. That's not a good reason to be happy. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The moment you think it's about your success, the moment you become self-absorbed in it. But the moment you take your success and focus it squarely on Jesus, when you rejoice that your name is written in heaven, that is when the mission is done well. And what does it mean to have your name written in heaven? Well, this is probably a reference to a practice that happened in the ancient world, which is something similar to like we have citizenship today. So I'm a Canadian citizen, which means somewhere in the government of Canada's records, my name is written down as a person who has all the rights and privileges afforded to me by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Some of you are not Canadian citizens yet, and so you are not afforded those things, and if the government chose, they could kick you out. Your name is not written. Jesus is saying the same thing about heaven, that your name is written now, what's interesting about this is, is the order of events, right? If you want to be a Canadian citizen, you have to sign the right papers and pay the right fees and talk to the right people and go to the right places at the right times. You need to put in all this work and then your name will be written. But the gospel is different. The gospel is your name is already written. Now you can live like it. You can rejoice that the gospel is you have been freely included. You are freely a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. You have been brought in under the reign and rule of Christ, not because of your work, but because of Christ's work. Not because you are particularly put together or a great disciple or a really good evangelist, but because Christ is who he says he is. Rejoice in that. And if you do, then you'll move out into this mission field with both confidence and humility. The confidence of knowing that ultimately this isn't about me. If people reject me, it's not about me. They rejected Jesus. If people listen to me, it's not about me. They just listened to Jesus. And you'll have the humility of knowing that if I fail, it's not about me. It's about them and Jesus we have that beautiful thing that we get from the gospel that no other worldview has. Every other worldview says do the right things and then you're included, then you're written in the book. The gospel says you are written right now. So rejoice in that. And lest we think that any of this depends on us, Jesus finishes the text this way. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. If you think this is about your brilliance, it's not. It's about Jesus' mercy. He then continues, all things have been committed to me by my father. And no one knows who the father is except the son and those to whom the son chooses to reveal him. If you know Jesus, it's not because you found him. It's because Jesus showed himself to you. And then finally, he turns to his disciples and says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Why? Because there were those who wished they could see what you see, but they didn't get to see it. They hoped for the Messiah who they didn't know, but you know him, you know his name. You know that his name was put on you in your baptism. You know that his body and blood were fed to you in the supper. You know him. And so Cross of Life, as we move out in this mission field together, let's remember Jesus. Remember that our names are written in heaven because of him. Let our eyes always focus on him. That he be the motivation and the peace that passes all understanding as we all participate in this mission of declaring that Christ is risen to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for encouraging us and enjoining us with this mission. We're not worthy of it. We're not worthy of it because of our sin. We are not worthy of it because of our repeated failures. And yet you continue to say, no, your names are written. I appoint you. Go and proclaim the kingdom. We we pray that you would send out workers into your harvest field. We, of course, pray that this means that you would send pastors into your harvest field to fill the congregations that are vacant of pastors right now but it also means that we ask that you would make us those workers in the harvest field here in Mississauga for the sake of bringing more of your harvest in and enjoying the fellowship that you offer us in your body and blood. We ask all those things in your name.